Do you think it's time to abolish the 40-hour work week, or at least make it less predominant in our lives? And if we did, what would happen? Many countries are seriously considering getting rid of the whole clock change thing, you know, where every year we move the clocks forward and backwards for reasons that people do not fully understand or agree with, so why not redefine the work week as well? Hello and welcome to Cool Time Life. I am Steve Prentice. Each of our Cool Time Life podcasts focuses on a topic dealing with people, productivity, technology, and life, and each offers ideas and facts that you need to know about to thrive in today's busy world. An index of our podcasts is available at steveprentice.com under the podcast link. The past few years have shown us that people are able to work in more fluid and flexible ways, thanks mostly to technology that allows us to meet from anywhere and do some, if not all, of our work from anywhere and also any when. So let's look at where the 40-hour workweek came from in the first place and why it is now truly an anachronism for many of us. It started out as an actual improvement. In the mid-1800s, efforts were being made to reduce the work week from 100 hours, in some cases, down to 40 hours, something that employers refused to listen to and which resulted in massive strikes. One of the largest demonstrations, called the Haymarket Affair, happened in Chicago in 1867. Actions such as these eventually led to a legal definition of a work week as being 40 hours as of May 1st, 1886, which is why that date is still celebrated as a worker's day in many places around the world. Other companies eventually came on board with this, including the rail industry and Ford Motor Company in 1926. In fact, Henry Ford was one of the first business tycoons to recognize that quality improved and the number of injuries decreased when working hours were confined to a more practical number, which turned out to be 40. One of the concepts that often goes overlooked when contemplating the 40-hour workweek as a norm in the context of the 21st century is that in addition to defining it as an ideal for productivity and safety, it was also designed with the so-called nuclear family in mind, that early 20th century notion of a married couple with two kids pursuing the American dream of a house, a car, a good education for the children, and a pension. It relied on the fact that one half of this parental arrangement would stay home to care for the kids, cook the meals, and do all of that domestic stuff. That's a really important point to remember. 40 hours was essentially based on a division of labor between two people, one at the workplace and the other at home. Now think how this applies today. For couples who enter into a marriage or any form of commitment, the likelihood is that both partners want to continue with their careers, and rightfully so. But in so doing, assuming they both take full-time 40-hour workweek jobs, the costs involved in making that money easily creep up to match or even exceed what is being brought home after taxes. The cost of the commute, for example, of owning a car, the cost of caring for the kids at daycare, the cost of owning a home close enough to be commutable at all. These are the costs of the money being made, and it is no wonder that couples still feel that it is an enormous struggle even when things work as they supposedly should. These types of situations become even more dangerous for single parents, and overall, full-time work becomes less of a ladder towards success as it does a temporary day-by-day aspirin to keep despair at bay. But that's the foundation upon which the 40-hour workweek was built. In some countries, the concept of a multi-generational mortgage is now a thing where banks, realizing that many of their customers cannot hope of getting a mortgage and paying it off in 40 years, must now subject their offspring to its obligation as well. So the 40-hour workweek was supposedly a stable model built for a relatively stable and slowly changing society. 
the one-person-at-work-and-one-person-at-home nuclear family arrangement was idealized, even though it was not available for all families back in the 50s even, and is ridiculously anachronistic and inappropriate today. Everything changed, of course, once internet-connected computers became home appliances, although the idea of working from home made only a small dent on the overall working culture, and the definition of working hours still remained a 40-hour workweek concept, that is, until the COVID outbreak showed us just how many people could get their work done from somewhere other than a central office. Of course, the ideas of working from home and working according to something other than a 40-hour workweek model does not sit well with many organizations who count on such stability as a foundational element of their existence. And if I or anyone were able to show that the 40-hour workweek was in fact a solid and productive way to generate revenue in a knowledge worker-based organization, then such pushback would have merit. But in fact, the opposite is true. I've been working with organizations on-site for more than 20 years, and frankly, a 40-hour workweek, five days of 9 to 5, is not a great way to get anything done. To me, it's like having a wheelbarrow with no wheel. You load it up and you push it back and forth for 40 hours, and you think you're getting a lot done. There is no thought given to improving the process by adding a wheel. Companies just slog on forward. That's the way we've always done it. So what happens during a typical 40-hour workweek? Well, far less than the 40 hours of work, that's for sure. For a start, there's interruptions, email, other messages, as well as from the scheduling and conduct of meetings, whether in person or online. There are also interruptions from other people, often from managers that not only take time, but also derail a person's train of thought. Now let's look at this last one for a moment. A great misconception in the minds of managers and those who work for them is that when a person is interrupted by a conversation or a message, they can simply get back to what they were doing without missing a beat. But it doesn't happen that way. It takes a few minutes for someone to get back to the same level of concentration they were at prior to the interruption, and the more interruptions that occur, the more delay that occurs overall. The human brain cannot simply snap back into full concentration mode like the way you would flip channels on a TV. It must instead gather that concentration back, piece by piece, minute by minute. If you want more background on why and how this happens, you can check out my podcast episode entitled, Are You Conscious? But the essence of all of this is that an interruption triggers a miniature version of the fight-or-flight response, which shifts vital resources away from the brain and other places of the body in preparation for emergency. Yes, that sounds awfully dramatic, but that's central to the problem. We as a species have conveniently forgotten that we still run on an architecture in which large predators were the primary concern. The fact that we still react the same way to smaller threats like interruptions is an inconvenient truth, but it's a truth all the same. The 40-hour workweek is based largely on the value of face time. Employees being visible in front of their managers and managers being visible in front of their employees. This is not so much defining productivity as replacing it. It is this type of dysfunction that I observed over and over again as I worked with people in offices who were struggling to balance their time and tasks. They thought it was the work that they were having problems with, when in most cases it was other humans who were the cause of all of their time management problems. So I wrote my book, Cool Time, a hands-on plan for managing work and balancing time. It first came out in 2005 and is now in its third edition for the 2020s, the mobile and Zoom-based world in which we now live. And in this book, I half-jokingly propose that February 9th be declared Cool Time Day. The reason for this is kind of the same way that Black Friday 
was originally intended to delineate the moment on the calendar in which retail stores were no longer working at a financial loss, in the red, but were financially turning a profit, an accounting term called in the black. The colours in this case being used to reflect the two different inks that accountants used, and some bookkeeping apps still do, to highlight profits and losses. A similar calendar event happens every year with Tax Freedom Day, which sadly gets later and later every year. It's supposed to represent the time that you have made enough money to pay your taxes and are now working for yourself. There is an interesting subtext here, of course, almost a sly nod to the entire futility of the 40-hour workweek built right into that celebration. Anyway, that's what Cool Time Day is supposed to be. It is intended to symbolize the true number of hours of productive work available to us within the course of a year. And that number is 40. 40 days of true productivity per year. That's it. And since February the 9th is the 40th day of every year, it makes sense to assign it right there. So how do I get to this surprising and seemingly unrealistic number? By taking all the elements that go into a typical 40-hour workweek that the 20th century world was defined by, most often at an on-site multi-person office. Of course, these numbers don't apply so much to people who are now blending work and life more flexibly, but that is the point. It doesn't make sense to define work around a fixed number of hours unless you work shift work. So for everyone who is not on shift work, here's how the 40 days comes around. Start with a 365-day year. Subtract 104 days for weekends, assuming you don't work weekends. This leaves you with 261. Okay, subtract 9 days for the average number of personal holidays and sick days. That gives you 252. Then subtract 10 public holidays, almost one per month. That gives you 242. That still seems like a good number of days per year to get things done, but remember, work at work isn't just work. There's a lot of human physiology involved. Consider the weekend effect. The 42 Mondays and the 42 Fridays per year in which 20% of productivity is lost through anticipating the weekend or following it up. Friday afternoon is a terrible time to have a focused meeting, am I right? And similarly, getting back up to speed on a Monday morning. It's not the same thing as regular work. Just because an ambitious boss calls a meeting for 9am on a Monday morning does not mean people will be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed for it. So, 20% of these 42 Fridays and 42 Mondays is equivalent to 17 more days lost. That brings us down to 225. Remember those 10 public holidays? Well, they tend to carry the Friday effect across the entire week. Long weekend coming up, says the morning drive-time DJ. It impacts travel plans, meeting plans, and overall focus. So that's 10 afternoons before each long weekend and 10 mornings after the long weekend in which people are working to 50% capacity for the same reasons, anticipating the weekend coming up or recovering from it. So this adds another five days to our list, which brings us down to 220. And then you can add to this the Christmas or holiday season effect, which does this whole thing over at least four days, if not the entire month of December and into January. So the rest of my calculation comes from the fact that only 25% of any day is given over to actual real work, with the rest being set aside for meetings, Zoom calls, and so on. So 25% of 216 is 54. And finally, factor in sleep deprivation, a very real issue that grows over the course of the work week. This decline in performance means that people are lucky if they work to 75% of their true capacity. So 54 days times 75% equals 40 due to sleep debt, headaches, and overall brain fog. So that's how I come down to the conclusion that in a 40-hour workweek year, we only get 40 days' worth of work done per year. Okay, you say that's like the old expression about lies, damned lies, and statistics. Anything can be construed through subjectively chosen numbers. That is true. 
But you should ask yourself, how many of these things do happen, even though we don't think that they do or don't want to admit that they do? How many meetings start late? How many times do you have to say, let's see, where was I, after interruption? How often do we do runs to the coffee shop or end up chatting in the kitchenette? I'm not saying these things are bad, I'm simply saying they happen. And that's what's so wrong about expecting a 40-hour work week to generate 40 hours, especially in the before times, that is, before COVID. More importantly, this serves to underline just how precious true productivity really is and how hard it is to see this when we're in the thick of it. My point here is that the 40-hour work week never worked for anyone whose work involved production of what I will call materials of the mind, sometimes called knowledge work. People who work in factories in shifts on assembly lines have work that is better suited to a 40-hour workweek construct, but as I mentioned at the start of this episode, they also had to fight for unionization to protect workers from, amongst other things, the unreasonable and unsafe practices of being on for all of the hours of a shift. After much struggle, they got their downtime recognized and mandated. Now, as we enter a world in which working from home and flexible hours are really becoming part of the fabric of the economy, I believe it's time to say goodbye to a system of work based on a number of hours and focus more on output. That's not to say this will be easy, but hey, freelancers, including myself, have been doing this for years. This will, of course, require some substantial retooling of a corporate HR and payroll procedure, but I think it is the future. Bright and motivated people have already started looking around and many have already left their frustrating payroll jobs for the freedom of freelancing in the gig economy. This includes people who have either retired from or got right-sized out of a job only to be hired back as a consultant. Hopefully, as the 21st century shakes off the long shadow of the Industrial Revolution and its 40-hour workweek mantle, a new model for working will re-emerge in which working conditions and even the prices of houses and groceries are driven not by arbitrary and clearly inefficient models, such as the 40-hour workweek, but of something more direct, tangible and realistic. Every century and every decade eventually uncovers its own identity that differentiates itself from the ones previous. I think the death of the 40-hour workweek will belong to the 21st century and will find its footing in the 2020s. So, there you have it, my little podcast about the 40-hour workweek and the 40-day year and how maybe it's time for a change. If you have a comment about this podcast, you can drop me a line through the contact form at steveprentice.com, where you can also find my social media links. A full listing of past episodes is available at steveprentice.com slash podcast. I update these episodes regularly so that the concepts do not get dated. So check them out and download whatever feels good. And if you feel you are getting value from this series, please do leave a review at your platform of choice. And if you want, you can support us on Patreon. Contributions from our listeners allow me and my team to spend more time researching and preparing these podcasts. If that feels fair to you, please visit patreon.com slash Steve Prentice. That's S-T-E-V-E-P-R-E-N-T-I-C-E. Until next time, stay safe, stay confident, and thanks for listening. <laughs>